Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk, one-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stachowiak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of changelog.com. Lin Tai is the founder of Key Values, a platform where developers find engineering teams that share their values. But to be more precise, Lin is a solo founder. She's also a team of one. And her path to becoming a founder was anything but typical. She had plans to follow her parents' and sisters' footsteps, to go into academia, and she got two years into pursuing her PhD in neuroscience before she made one of the best choices in her life. She quit. Lynn has mastered the art of quitting, at the right time, of course, and she's used that art as her secret weapon in her quest to become a founder. Let's talk about quitting, because quitting seems to be a secret tool of yours. And I don't say that badly because I've quit too, and I've learned the idea of focusing. And when you focus, you have to quit things that take away your focus. So let's For sure. let's open up with the importance of quitting. Um, it's, it's I'm smiling as you mentioned that. I think quitting is oddly one of my favorite topics, and it's so interesting that every time anyone brings it up, they always have to like couple that with a I, not to be offensive, not like no offense or not trying to insult you. Like I think there's just such a negative connotation with quitting, yeah. um, but I'm like a, I'm I'm a proud quitter. I guess um, I think quitting is something people should talk about more, especially in entrepreneurship. Um, and I think it's it's weird that it's not. Uh, I talked uh, or I think I talked about this at one point, but or somewhere else. But just to say that in grad school, so I was I was a grad student. I studied neuroscience for many years, and one of the things that was interesting was a lot of the most successful PIs are. Um, like in, the investigators, um, professors, people who run the labs, researchers, um, they have a skill that seems to be that they're very good at quitting. Like you do a project, you know when to, to stop and start a new one. Um, and it's like seems to be, it just like was top of mind. Um, but when it comes to startup world or founders, it's it's almost the only thing you hear is like, just don't quit. The, only, right. like, the best way to succeed is just don't quit. And it's just so strange because projects are very similar, both in the lab and with companies. And they're like, I mean, all the parallels are there. Like you have to know when to quit something. It's, you're not going to be successful if you don't, like if you spend 20 years going in a direction that's just going like a dead end. Right. Um, so I think knowing when to if quit you're in a cul-de-sac, super, get out. Say that again? If you're in a cul-de-sac, get out. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Have um, you read Seth Godin's book, The Dip? I have not. Okay. No. So since this is such a key ingredient to your story, which is why we began there, uh, and you're such an advocate for, you know, the right time to quit. I would say homework for you is to read while you're on, on this vacation. You may or may not be on. I'm not sure what you're doing in Ithaca, but um, <laughs> read the book. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, don't pause the show and go read it, but pause the show and go buy it 
and then <laughs> come back to the show and read it later. But your homework as a listener is to read the dip. My gosh. Love it. Wisdom. So one thing Seth says in that book, Seth Godin, he says, uh, you know, if you're in a cul-de-sac, get out basically. Because if you're in a cul-de-sac, like you said, if you're going that direction and, and your business is in a cul-de-sac, well, what is a cul-de-sac? It's a dead end. Exactly. It's a pretty dead end. circle. You can kind of keep <laughs> going around there and, and there's yeah. no real long-term path. And Seth's advice in that is basically what you said before, which is why I thought that uh, you should read this if you haven't yet, is that it's about the right time to quit. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you don't start something and and see it through to the end because you have to like winners never quit and quitters never win kind of mentality. But, you know, there's this dip in between starting and finishing. That is this lull. Some, you know, in the startup world, you hear it as the uh, trough of sorrow, et cetera. Yeah. You know, this sort of long sloth, this long, you know, time period that's very hard. But it's the the, the winners are the difference between the people who can get through the dip. But is the dip worth getting through is the long story short. So this isn't a no, book. for sure. This isn't like an advertisement for his book, but I love that book. Anyways. <laughs> if it wasn't, it was perfect. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to say, though, is something that's also interesting is just thinking about the difference between giving up and quitting. And I know yes. this is just semantics, but in my mind, um, quitting is when you've – I mean, no one starts anything knowing that they're going to quit. Or maybe maybe they do, and that's fine. Um, but most people don't. Right. And I think the difference is when – you start, you have this goal in mind. There's something that you want to get to. There's something you want to accomplish. And quitting it is not, it's when you identify that you no longer want that goal. Um, or in some cases, of course, just knowing that the path to getting to that goal is not optimal for you. It's not going to make you happy. It's not like the easiest. It's, there's some other reason. Um, but I think there's just something that's weird is that you get a lot more information as time goes on, but people don't reevaluate with the new information that they have. Um, giving up on the other hand is like when you really still do want that end goal and you just don't have it in you. And I think that's what most people mean when they say don't quit. They mean don't give up. Like, right. like I know it's hard, but that you should push through if you're still excited about it. Um, if everyone's telling you that it's not going to work, but you still wake up excited about doing it, like don't give up. Like don't like ignore the haters. Like that part I, I believe in and I understand that. Um, but there's this, yeah. And then the second part of that is I think quitting, like, if your goal, let's say your goal is to be happy or to be successful, like whatever those means, those are like very subjective endpoints. Right. Um, you have in order to get to that endpoint, which is very nebulous, you have to quit a bunch of stuff in the middle. And so I think people just are almost hyper focused and they're thinking like, if I start this book, I have to finish it, even though it's boring and it's taken you a year to get to thirteen pages. You know, like just you don't need to finish it for the sake of finishing it. Right. Um, definitely quit that book. <laughs> Well, let's talk about specifically how quitting has been key to you. Can you give us the example or examples, if that's the case, of, you know, maybe the moment you were quitting, what you're in some of the ways you thought about, like, I should I should stop doing this to get here. Like, were you evaluating and optimizing for your happiness? What were you doing? Yeah. Um, so the very I mean, I've quit a bunch before this dropping out of grad school, but that was the first major like quitting experience that I had. So um, in college, I, I was studying brain and cognitive sciences. And then immediately after college, I didn't take any time off. I moved to San Francisco to go to UCSF and pursue a PhD in neuroscience. Um, and this is, you know, on average between, I don't know, like five and 10 years. It's very wow. wide. Yeah. And um, yeah, and this is, I think the context here is helpful. My older sister and both my parents are also academic professors. So everyone in my family, you know, is a doctor and has a PhD. And so for me, it was like the obvious, like it, 
there's never a question in my mind growing up that I wouldn't get my PhD. And, um, yeah, two years in it, or maybe a year and a half in, it got really hard. And it, that was the time where my parents and my sister were like, Oh yeah, it's hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Right. Just push through. We were there. It was hard. It's true. Advice. Know, everyone thinks it's hard, which is, yeah, which is true for sure. And then, you know, so six months later, you know, I was like really miserable and I really didn't, I could not pinpoint what it was. Um, it was just mind blowing to me that the thing that, and I was also doing pretty well. Like I was doing really well. I had, I think I was like the first in my class to, to, to um, pass my qualifying exam. I had like a, I co-authored a paper that was published wow. already. Like things were going really well. Um, so it just, I, did, I think it just didn't cross my mind that the thing I was doing well at could have been the source of my misery. Um, and I just thought it was like, could have been anything else. I was like, maybe I miss my home, my friends, maybe I'm homesick. I was dating this guy from college at the time. I was like, maybe we should move in together. Maybe we should break up. Like, I don't, are we, should we, are we getting married? Like, I just didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea where the questioning all the things, all the things, like all the things. Um, I was like, maybe I don't like my neighborhood that I live in. I don't know. Um, but yeah, then I, then it was like, oh, maybe I don't like what I'm doing every day. And there was a question of like, Oh, should I change my project? Should I change labs? Should I try to transfer to a different school? And then eventually, um, it's actually, this is super cliche. I went to burning man. It's not my first burn, but, and it wasn't at burning man that I had this epiphany. It's actually, whenever I do have a, like a life changing revelation, it's always after, but it was coming back from burning man. And I was sitting in this talk, like a postdoc research talk or something. It was like eight 30. It's super early. I was eating this bagel. It was, t- it was like, crap like terrible bagel <laughs> it tastes so bad and just i had literally a aha moment where i was like i don't like this and i don't have to do it and it was wow it was like literally like a light switch where it was dark before and i was confused and then all of a sudden someone turned the lights on and i could see everything and it was like very clear to me that i just didn't want to do this for the rest of my life and then i ended up dropping out like a week like a week later um so it just happened really really quickly once i once i had that like moment of clarity. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah, that was one of many different times I quit something. Um, I had a long string after, but I think for me at the time it was just really about being happy. And also I stopped looking forward to the, the outcome. Like the, the end goal just didn't seem as exciting to me as it once did. And of course at that point it's like, what's the point of working so hard and being miserable doing something that you're not even excited about? Win. It's like it's like winning a race that you don't even care about winning, which is something that I try to remind myself to this day. It happens actually still happens a lot where I get a little confused about whether it's my goals or if it's other people's goals or um, and having to decouple that is, is like an ongoing process for me. That's interesting. Your goals versus somebody else's goals. Um, for the listeners sake, listening to this, because I want to fast forward just a tiny bit to at least preface what you're doing now so that it gives <laughs> yeah, a little bit of context <laughs> Because this show isn't simply about key values. It's it's really about you. But, mm-hmm. you know, key values in you are so symbiotic right now because yeah. you, you're in the early stages of being this business for yourself. But this question of quitting and this, this circumstance you found yourself in and this very profound thought you've had that has seemed to have uh, unlocked the key to your life, so to speak, has been pretty yeah. cool. So just give us a quick preface of like what you're doing now. What is key values? hundred percent. Yeah. So key values is, um, it helps software engineers find teams that share their values. And it's really like, it, I mean, it's pretty on brand with what I'm saying. If you, it's for people who, you know, either they are currently at a job that they don't love, they're not excited. There's dread every Sunday night thinking about the next day. Um, 
or anyone who's looking for a job trying to just optimize for some, a life that they would be excited about and finding a, finding the companies and the teams that would make them happy. And it's usually because of value alignment. It's not because it's like, I don't know, a company or grandparents have heard of. Like that's nice to have the name recognition, but that's definitely not a predictor for, for uh, quality of life or anything like that. And so, yeah, the way it works on key values is there's a preset list of uh, 45 values. And I ask companies that I work with to select the eight from that list that best describe their engineering culture. And then, of course, the harder part is then qualifying it, like not just talking the talk, but walking the walk and proving it. And I think it's really just to help reorder the steps of the interview process and help kind of job seekers or anyone who's just interested in joining a team learn about the actual people on that team mm-hmm. before they commit to this, you know, a phone, even a phone call, but the usually exhausting interview process. Um, and of course, it, I think it's funny. I didn't know this at the time. I always, you know, I still build key values for software engineers in mind and for the job seeker. But a lot of what I feel like my job is actually almost like a, a coach in some ways. Like I give a lot of pep talks to both companies and job seekers just about, um, I, I think it's just, uh, it can be a pretty soul sucking process, hiring and interviewing and then also on both oh, sides yeah. and then searching for jobs. So, um, my gosh, that's the hardest thing is the most, um, aside from buying a house, getting married, uh, having a kid, <laughs> those getting a job, I would say is yeah. in line with the stress level or difficulty level. Would you agree with that? I actually think all those other things are more fun. Getting married should be fun. Right. Um, but I feel you, I, I got married in December and we did not do the traditional, like we didn't have a wedding. We just went to the courthouse and I, I mean, it was way, it's because we were avoiding a lot of what people think is really fun, but would seem really stressful and yes. fun to us. Well, we had our wedding in Jamaica, my wife and I, Ooh. we did a destination wedding. Nice. And we nice. invited we, our closest friends so we didn't have to deal with the whole yeah. 300 people there, feeding everybody, oh, throwing a big party a when lot. it should be around us and our you Yeah, because it starts to not be about for you. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, I think that ho- hopefully Jamaica was more fun than looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll scratch that one off. It, I didn't say it was about me, Lynn. I just said that just generally people uh, <laughs> tend to have some stress around the marriage process. You know? Yes, no, no, for sure. So There's definitely, a lot. my wife, if you're listening to this, I love you. Uh, I was not stressed out about marrying you. Do not believe Lynn. She's telling lies. Well, I was just going to quickly say that actually uh, my my husband and I, Oliver and I, we actually decided to sign a prenup. And in the beginning that was stressful, but it ended up being such a good process. And that's a huge digression, but I'm like very pro prenups now, which is, I did not start that way, but that's, yes. But anyways, there was some stress around that in the beginning, just because there's like anytime there's legal paperwork, it's a lot of, there's there's a lot to think about. And that's the same thing as finding a job. You're literally legally binding yourself at least for some period of time to a company that's right and so before you say your i do's i hope people really think long and hard about the person that they're you know quote unquote marrying into I'm using, yeah. you, well, i'm doing the air quotes here um but yeah i think a lot of people don't consider what's most important i think if you wanted to compare it it's almost like you marry someone because they look good on paper it's the same as like most people it's, it's actually how most people find a job they're like sounds good like without digging in at all or thinking about what the day to day looks like. Yeah. They think about, you know, the initial, like, it'd be so fun to announce that I'm going to work at Google or, and not knocking Google, but you know, that's a very superficial reason to get married. <laughs> right. Just the, just the, it's, it's almost like getting married based simply on looks. Yeah. Never hearing the person's voice, never feeling their embrace, just simply looking at the person, which is kind of like a brand. Like if you just look at Google, what you think they are about, 
you think you want to work there for the brand name or whatever. You know? Yeah. And it's one of the things I think is like the lessons that I learned Two, one is never judge a company based on their website. I know it's like, it's still tempting for me sometimes, like when I'm rushing to just like get a sense of what a company does. Um, but it's just a horrible way to judge a company. And I know everyone does it, which is why wow, I, do yeah. it. Um, I judge um, people every day by their websites. Yeah, no, it's really, really interesting. Um, and especially with early startups, I think there are a lot of, it's almost, I wouldn't say it's inversely related, but or correlated, but there are definitely companies who focus way too much on making their marketing website look pretty and don't spend time trying to find product market fit or like serving their customers. And it's not like a business that's going to do necessarily well. And it's definitely no indicator of like whether the team likes each other or gels. So, um, but that's, that's one thing. And the second thing I was going to say is it is very easy to tie the brand and personality of a company, like their product or their service with the internal team. And some, sometimes those things are, are matched, but sometimes they're very, very different. And I don't, and this is, well, I don't know if I'm trying to edit myself here, but I've had a couple of friends work at Snapchat and they said it could like the, the personality of Snapchat as a brand is very different from how it is internally. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I definitely see it here and there um, with company and sometimes for the better, like sometimes a, a product yeah. seems very serious. It's like, I don't know. It's like, security compliant something you know like something real, maybe dryish but internally there's like a team that does like they have like all these quirks and they're very non, they have all these interesting traditions that they do together um very colorful personality and it has nothing to do like it's not the same as their products brand what i hear here is that um you went to school for some really deep subject around the brain you were pursuing a phd and what you're doing now is something like it's like a 180, you know, it's not at all the the brain sciences. However, I would say that you could probably employ a lot of what you learned uh, in the sciences around the brain because of the emotional attachment between a person, their identity, and their job. Not that that's a, a, a healthy way of life to completely identify yourself by your job, but a lot of people's identities are really tied into – their job or what they do, right? Like if I said, right. hey, Lynn, what do you do? You're probably going to tell me what you do for to make money generally. Not, yeah. well, I like to backpack and hike and mountain bike or whatever it might be. You know, you don't generally lead with your hobbies. You generally lead with the thing that you do 40 a week. Just you saying that makes me want to edit my questions when I meet people. I don't, I should ask them, what do you love to do? That's what I should ask. Because it can be work. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, yeah, it's, I, so I'm in, as you mentioned, I'm in Ithaca now with, and I flew in with my mom last night and it's because I was born and raised here and we're selling the house long story short. So I'm, it's not really a vacation. It's almost like moving out a bunch of stuff. Um, but we were talking about this yesterday, just how growing up, my parents genuinely loved what they did so much. And I think I con confused that with their occupation rather than their, their relationship with their, their occupation like I wanted that too and I thought therefore I should also do what mm -hmm. they are doing yeah um but yeah I mean it's I think it, it's not good or bad to tie your identity with what you do um if you love what you do then by all means and it's I think I'm very fortunate to do something where it's really one and the same well the, the thing is the dichotomy between where you're at now like based on what I know of your story is you know your parents your sister so there's definitely some people that you love and trust that you were being influenced by in positive ways, you know, that were role models to you. 
and you pursue that direction, but now you're in somewhere completely different. It's almost shocking, you know, not that you don't deserve to be where you're at, obviously, but like that it's just so starkly different than brain science or the cognitive yeah. sciences or, you know, neurobiology or anything like that. Like it's in a whole different it's world. It's so different. It's so different. And I, oh yeah, this is what you were saying before. I actually think there's very little that I can transfer from my scientific research days to now. Like it's, I mean, like I have really great fine motor control. I can do lots of like really with precision do replicate surgeries on mice. Like that's just not useful today. I don't do any of that today. Okay. Um, so maybe I don't know the science, your science is very well enough uh, to know. <laughs> so I mean, my assumption well, was that you were of... studying the brain and, you know, maybe things like, I would think, you know, things around um, how our minds work around empathy would be really strong for you, you know? So there's, I studied more of like motivation and re reinforcement learning in my, in my, at least like the last couple of years. And so I think that's something that, I, I mean, part of the reason why I studied that is because I always had, I was like, had this interest in it, a fascination with it, even when I was young. Right. So I think that's still true, but I wouldn't say it's because of science that, how do I say that? I feel like if you cut out the science part, nothing would really have changed. Like I could, you could still learn everything that I know now. Like my level of knowledge with, as, in terms of neuroscience is like, I'm basically a lay person at this point. I, <laughs> it's embarrassing sometimes when I meet up with people from my former life. It's like, I can't even talk. You can't <laughs> hang. About, I cannot hang for sure. I'm like, what is that again? Did I pronounce that word again? Right. I yeah. don't know. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a huge departure and it's actually, yeah, honestly, it's been so many years. I sometimes forget how hard it was. Like it was, it's true. It's true. Everyone in my family, everyone that I loved, everyone that I respected, was in that world. And so leaving it was such a big deal. And I, I think people talk about it now. They'll like say in a sentence, like I dropped out, but like, you, like really being able to make that decision is huge. And it's like, for me, I think the hardest part was just coming to terms with the fact that I was not who I always thought I was. And that's like real existential crisis. That is. Wow. Like, I really had no idea who I was. I was leaving everyone and everything that I knew behind. Like I didn't have a network outside of academia. Like I don't even know who to ask for help. Like I literally everyone that I knew and talked to for six years prior was, was in academia. Um, and yeah, and of course, you know, I, my, my family is very supportive now, but it was definitely really hard in the beginning. And I think yeah. it was like a lot, a lot of tears and, um, it was really hard for my parents to understand why. And I, it's actually interesting. I think my so what I really did was I took a leave of absence, I think it was called, and you're, you're allowed, I'm actually not even sure of the rules, I think you're allowed to leave for a year and just come back at that point, and I think I, I did that just in case, but I had no intention of ever, like, I knew for sure. Yeah, um, when I, when I make a decision to quit, like, I know, I never look back, like, it, it's for certain. Um, so, But it, it's weird, because even, like, two, three years after I dropped out, people still thought I might come back. And I was like, my mind was like so far from that. I was like, what? Like that's, yeah. it was just weird that other people were almost living in the past to me. It's what mm -hmm. it felt like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and in some ways like me becoming a founder, which is so, I never would have guessed that, um, is part of why I can say to people that you need to really think long and hard about who you are. You can reinvent yourself at any time, at any age. You don't need the skills to be whoever you want to be now. Like you can develop them so long as that's what you want to do. And I don't say that because it sounds nice. I say it because I did it. Yeah. Um, and I really can't imagine what my life would be like if I hadn't done it. So. And let's talk about the, you know, the rough moments, so to speak. So you had this 
existential crisis, this profound moment where you realize, well, hey, you know, eating this terrible bagel uh, at this <laughs> at this talk at eight thirty in the morning. I'm assuming not at eight thirty at night. Was it eight thirty night yeah, or eight thirty in the morning? Am, am. Okay, because I was like, oh, okay, well, bagels. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it might be a salad or something or cookies, but. You know, so you have this profound thought that, you know, the life you're living isn't the life you really want for the various reasons you mentioned. At what point did you, uh, were you depressed for a while? Did you gain some confidence? When did you get this confidence to transform your life and become a software engineer and, you know, do key values? Like, what was that path for you? Oh, okay. Well, enter long storytelling. <laughs> um Oh man, it is really cliche. So I think what happened was I was, as I mentioned, I was just like so miserable and I didn't know why I was just, I was really unhappy and didn't know what it was. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess in some ways I was depressed. Um, I don't, I never really like, I think it seemed cheerful at the time, right? Cause I, there were things that still made me excited and happy. I just didn't know what was, something just wasn't right. Like the, the I like made a rest, like I had a recipe and I, totally swapped out sugar for salt. And I was like, clearly something's really wrong. But I didn't know what I did. Um, but then That's when I went to Burning Man, which, <laughs> which I don't know if you've been to Burning Man or whoever's listening, but it's, it was just like a week with people who were so genuinely happy. And I was at this camp and there was these two DJs that I was, I became friends with and they like woke up every morning and made music together. And they like genuinely loved waking up. Like they wouldn't be able to sleep sometimes. They were just so excited about what they're doing. They always want to talk about it. They want to share what they're doing. Anytime someone asks them, so like, what do you do? You know, they're like not even shy about it. They're like excited that they have this chance to talk about what they love and share what they love. And I think the juxtaposition from coming from a week of that with around, around all these people who just genuinely were ex genuinely excited to wake up, which is like, it just to me sounded so nice, but didn't seem real. And I saw it with my own eyes and then coming back and I was like, in, like I, I dreaded be I was like I hate being here like I have to pretend to be interested I have to make small talk I have to like I pay attention to something that just literally couldn't care less about and I just realized that I'd been pretending for so long and it wasn't making me happy so I think for me like some people still say like you are so brave or there's courage but I, it was I almost feel like it would have been I don't even know if it would have been harder for sure to just have swallowed that. So to me, it was like the path of least resistance to just stop forcing myself to do something that made me so unhappy. Um, and yeah, when I dropped out of grad school, I had nothing lined up, like nothing. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And this of course to, um, I don't know if people know, I'm Chinese American. Uh, my parents were like, there's, there's some saying, Oh my God, I'm going to totally butcher it. But there's some, there's like some proverb. Oh my God, I should have looked this up where you don't get off your horse to walk. Like if you, you transfer to another horse or like, or to an oxen or something, I don't know, whatever. Right. But I basically was getting off my horse and walking and they were like, this is silly. Like you should have something planned up, like make a plan. You don't need to drop out right now. But I think for me also, and this carried on to startup world and being an employee, like I can't work for someone or be on someone's dime unless I'm there. And if I already know, like, I can't coast or like milk someone else's budget. Like, I don't, it just doesn't feel ethically right. So I, I left as soon as I knew that my heart wasn't in it and that I wouldn't be able to like be productive grad student. Um, but yeah, I had nothing lined up. And as a grad student, I was making like 30 K a year living in San Francisco. I was no money saved. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, luckily I was able to be pretty scrappy. I like sold a bunch of my belongings and like did odd mm. jobs. I, I drove for sidecar, which was at the time, um, the competitor to Lyft Uber X didn't exist. 
my parents were so thrilled. I was basically a cab driver. Just kidding. They were terrified. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I like did that for a while just to like make ends meet. And then the, these DJs that I met, we like kept in touch and they're like, Hey, like you, you're good with people. Like you're organized. You're smart. Like you're excited about this too. Like maybe you should come work with us. And so they were not just DJs, but they also produced uh, EDM concerts. Like they would book big arenas, book talent, like DJs, the lighting, you know, and then sell tickets. And so I did that for a few months. Like I think I flew to like Rhode Island. We I met Steve Aoki and like they had like Big Sean concerts, oh. which was a really cool and fun time. But also at some point I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to just like party for a living. Yeah. Um, the novelty wore off real quick. Um, not to knock that world, I think it's a really interesting one, and I love that it's so people oriented. But um, yeah, it's all. I mean, also, yeah, they also couldn't like pay me a full salary yet, so there are some other reasons for that. Um, but then I so I quit that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I traveled, did the typical soul searching thing. Um, and then before I learned to code, I actually joined a company called Homejoy. But yeah, it was an on-demand cleaning company. And uh, I joined fairly early. I want to say it was like 10, 15 people. Not everyone was even a full-time employee at that time. Um, and it was I, the reason that I got like in touch with Homejoy is after my like three months of backpacking in Southeast Asia, um, I was just really poor and one of my friends was like oh do you want to come over for lunch and I was like yeah free food because I like literally cannot afford to pay for lunch right now wow. so I went over and they yeah they kind of like pitched me like they were totally trying to recruit and hire but I was just like naive and was like free food sweet can I take some of this home um <laughs> and yeah that just That's so it was awesome. friends from college that I knew of and yeah one thing that led to the next and I started working there and yeah Homejoy was super super interesting um that was my first real job I mean, you know, because I was like a grad student doing lab work this whole time. Um, and yeah, I was like 24, 25, my first real job. And it was not a typical first job. We went from, you know, like whatever number employee I was to 150. We grew into like 30 cities globally. Yeah. And then eventually I, my heart also wasn't in it. And I, I'm always like nervous to talk about this because I really did love Homejoy and I don't think it was anyone's fault per se. I think my vision for Homejoy just started to like, there's like, there's like a bifurcation, I guess, yeah, between what, the, the CEO. Yeah. yeah just I, I've been there. I've been in a position where I've been early in the company and it's similar to what we said before about the identity, you know, like you, you sort yeah. of identify with the direction of it. And when that, when the, the direction of it changes from the, you know, the identity that you had sort of planted for it, Yep. You know, and you don't really have any control of this direction. So you start to be like, exactly. well, this really isn't the company I thought it was going to be. And you start to exactly. eventually divorce from it, you know, emotionally yeah, exactly. and physically. Which, which I know this is definitely more taboo, but I actually think like, obviously no one gets married hoping to get divorced, but things change. And like, if you're not happy, I don't know. Oh man, this is like, <laughs> I'm not scared. It's probably really controversial. But I think like, I, I mean, I say this with Oliver, like if for some reason we, if we don't see eye to eye, we're not happy together. Then yeah, that's like, that's a very possible outcome. Of course we don't want that to happen. We'll work hard to avoid that. But like, of course that's, people are people, things change. You can't predict the future. Um, and that's the other thing about what I mentioned earlier. Like you get more data as time goes on, things reveal itself. And if you, you know, diverge from what this company is doing, then yeah, it's, it's time to part ways. And it's no one, again, it's no one's fault. Um, but yeah, my vision for home joy in the beginning, and this is, it is foreshadowing for key values is I thought it was more like matchmaking where, you know, different homes, different people want different queens. Like if you're a young single bachelor, you probably just want like, I don't know, your surfaces wiped down and your laundry folded or something. Whereas if you're a new mom to twins, you need someone to make sure there's no, there's like non-toxic 
products that everything is picked off the floor because you've got little babies eating, putting everything in their mouth, you know. It's like the detail, the level of clean is like so different. And so in my mind, HomeJoy was like helping people find their best cleaner. And of course, in order to scale really big, you to be the Uber for home cleaning, you need like the idea that the CEO and like the leadership team had was that it doesn't matter who shows up at your house, you get the exact same clean every single time. And that to me not only seemed impossible, but that just like wasn't what I, my heart was not in that mission. And so yeah, I ended up leaving HomeJoy um, which ended up probably being good because nine months later the company folded or like 10 months later or something like that. Yeah. But at HomeJoy, the thing I did appreciate was that I, so I was an operations manager at HomeJoy and I was managing cleaners. Um, basically any cleaning professional, anyone that got a clean in the Bay area between, you know, when it, the 18 months I was there, I, I feel like personally responsible for how <laughs> it went, whether it went great or if it went kind of bad, in which case I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I was managing like, you know, 150 cleaners at that point also, and, um, at, you know, bugs would happen at one point. I forget this. I think the, the best story, the one that I remember the most was there was a bug and an issue with, uh, the cleaning professionals getting their tips. And so I was getting my, like my phone was blowing up. People were like visiting, dropping into the office being like, lit, like, where's my money? Like you guys, like, where's my tips? Like you guys are stealing from us. And then all the city managers from other cities, like emailing me being like, Hey, like all my cleaners are blowing my phone up. Like, can you fix, like, can you fix this? And of course, like you have to like write, file a ticket <laughs> to like, but I was like, no, 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 I can't wait for this. Like, so I like ran over to the, to the engineers and I was like, things are on fire. Like I'm not leaving here until someone fixes this. Wow. And then, and I was, which is like, that's funny the way to do a ticket right there. Engineer. Show up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny now because like as a developer, I would hate for someone to just like show up and be like, Hey, Hey, like whatever you're doing, not important. Like, fix, like I'm the most important thing. Do what I need you to do. Right. Um, that's what I did. Um, and then, yeah, someone just was like, Oh, I'll do it. And they just like, in five minutes, they're like, "Oh, simple." It's like something like some lot like a, like a, an issue with the logic, and they just like fixed it in like one or two lines of code. And to me, I was like, "Wow, this this is like wizard, this is straight up magic." It was like seemed so powerful, and I think that was the first time it really planted a seed in my mind that you know coding is is, is it is it's wizardry, and I wanted to be able to wield that that power too. And I you know it doesn't matter how many one on one meetings I did, like that had so much impact. Like instantly all the, the, my phone stopped blowing up and it was like, everyone was saying thank you. And it was just over. And it just, I think, so that planted a seed. So I really appreciate that exposure from HomeJoy. Um, because then, yeah, after I quit HomeJoy, I, well, I did a little bit more soul searching, did more traveling, but then, um, decided that I wanted to learn how to code. And so that's kind of how that, that was a really long answer for how I started learning to code. Um, yeah. And then I did a boot camp, quit that, <laughs> um, learn a little on my own freelanced for a couple of years. And then in around March, 2017, I sat down to look for full-time roles. And that's when I realized that the job search was not fun. <laughs> and it was just so broken to me. Um, it just made no sense that, you know, I want to work for an early stage startup, which I already know not many people want to do. It's like a very weird personality to, to want to work at this risky unknown entity that could, you know, potentially blow up in any number of months yeah. um, for, for good or bad blow up, I guess. Uh, and at the same time, like when you're joining a startup, cause I just done this with HomeDry, you're really just there with the people. Like you're hanging out with five, 10, 15 people a lot and you don't know where you're going. You're in it for the ride. So you better like who you're on that ride with. And, even when I started interviewing it, like or talking to different startups, I couldn't get a sense of who the people were. 
until I did, you know, the cover letter application, phone screen, eight hour take home test, which is like wild. I'm like, I don't even know if I really want to work here. Or should I, I'm not going to do an eight hour take home test. Right. Yeah. They ask you to, the process asks you to invest so much so into the much. process before you even qualify if it's the place you want to be. Yeah. Like I don't even know if I'm excited about you yet. I'm not sure if I want to prove like, you know, I'm not exactly standing in line to, to prove myself to you. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up building the resource resource that I wish existed, which is key, exactly key values. And, um, I have to say, it's funny when I first started key values, I definitely wanted, like in my mind, I was like, this will replace technical recruiters. Cause I just had, had such bad experiences with like, incomp- let's be face it, like really incompetent technical recruiters, people who are not technical, people who weren't even employed by the company that I was trying to learn about. Right. They didn't even know anything about the team. Like, or they're, they just didn't know anything. They had no answers for me. There's a lot of money um, in the game too. And that's why those people are there that are really unskilled with the, the businesses and or the talent because there's a lot of money involved. You know, yeah. there's a lot of money to well, exchange hands if they can place the right people. And they're just, it's playing a numbers game. It's exactly, it's a, it's a bad variation of sales. Exactly. It is, I mean, it is exactly sales, I would say, but instead of, I mean, you're selling people, <laughs> people sales, <laughs> which sounds really bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I have to say now I've really 180 in that sense too. Like I really respect technical recruiters and the reason why there are so many bad ones is because it's an entry level job. Um, and it's because the job is really hard. So if you're really competent and really good at it, you get frustrated. I think a lot of the best recruiters that I've met, they get frustrated and they move into people ops or like they become pe- like they just transition to another role right. um, because they just realize how, I mean, and it's true. Basically technical recruiters are given an impossible task with little to no budget and have every day someone being like, okay, well what, what's taking so long? Like, why do we not have three female engineers here already? Like what's going on? It's like, there's just no empathy I think for people, um, on either side for, for recruiters. And so I really actually have the utmost respect for technical recruiters now. Um, and the other side is now I also understand things from the employer's perspective. Like it would be really expensive to have all of your engineers meet every applicant before you know that this applicant can do the thing. And so it makes sense why there's like this upfront vetting, especially with technical roles. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be miserable for everyone. Like I think key values is like really a, mm-hmm. one of many solutions that help kind of pull that apart. All the things that like someone wants to say in an interview, especially that initial call, like you don't need to repeat yourself every single time. Like that's, I mean, in, yeah, it, in the spirit of, of engineering, which loves efficiency and automation, like you really do not need to have a one-on-one spiel that you give to 10 different people every day. So put it down in writing, like let's have other people, like, like make sure that this is really quality content that reflects who you are and then give people the chance to learn about you before you even ask them to jump on the phone. Or, or do a t- eight-hour take-home test. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Discover.bot. Learn everything there is to know about bots at discover.bot slash founders talk. Discover.bot was built by Amazon Registry Services as an online community for bot creators and makers of all skill levels to learn from one another, to share stories, and they regularly publish guides and resources to answer questions like how to set up payments to your bot, how to stop shopping cart abandonment, what KPIs are worth measuring, how to write an engaging chat bot dialogue. You can even register .bot domains there. Learn more and explore this huge library of bot resources at discover.bot slash founders talk. Again, discover.bot slash founders talk.
let's talk about goal setting because sometimes goal setting can be motivation and a trap. Yeah. You know, sometimes uh, you get to a place that you set a goal to, and sometimes you get there easier than you wanted to, or you desire to, or you thought you could, and then you're like consumed by it. Like one thing in particular for us here at Change Logos, we have this newsfeed. And I don't know if you know anything about news feeds, but they require feeding, meaning that <laughs> you have to keep putting things into the bucket. And mm-hmm. so when Jared and I first launched it, like we ha- we've had this newsletter for a while and that we just did that once a week. And so our news feed turns into the newsletter at the end of the week, but we've got to put things mm. in all week long because we have this news feed. And so Jared, uh, with his great wisdom, said, I feel like we're building ourselves into a prison, meaning that we have to show up every single day find and log news or scale and add more people. But until that day, we have to be responsible for it. So long-windedly, I'm explaining what was once a goal for us that has been difficult to be, to have attained and gotten there because it requires so much of you. Can, can you share maybe how goals have been influential in your recent past? Yeah, no, that was a really good example actually of how that kind of shapes. I have, I come to that fork in the road all the time with key values of like, I like, I want this, but do I really want to do what it takes to get to that goal? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, goal setting, I think about motivation and goal setting so much. I don't know. I I wonder if everyone else thinks about it even half as much as I do. But um, in some ways, I think part of, I don't know, my quote unquote success was just setting really reasonable goals. Like in the very beginning, I just wanted to come up with a side project that I didn't hate after a week. Like that was mm-hmm. literally the goal. And then after that, it was like, oh, I want to actually like finish it, like build something and be able to, at least in my heart, call it like mostly done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, it was like showing people it, um, like not being afraid to get feedback. And then, you know, the next goal was launching it. That was probably the biggest of, of the goals before that. Um, and then, yeah, and then I launched it and then I entered the trough of sorrow and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you don't just, it's, <laughs> yes. it's cute, right? Because everyone thinks that you, the hardest part is launching a product and then you're like, like I'm done. I did it. Like, right now, the, now everyone's just going to stand in line, knocking on the door, trying to give, give you know, stay taking my money, take my money. Uh, but yeah, it's so not like that. No, um, and so all. then my next goal, of course, was like, you know, there's little goals. Like I want to hit this. I want to have this many company profiles. I want to place someone successfully. And then after that, it was like that was really exciting. And then it was I want to get one paying customer. And then after that, it was like oh, I want to have like ten paying customers. I want to be able to close this size deal, make this much money per month or quarter. And then, um, yeah, it's actually timely because I'm just kind of, I'm still kind of figuring out what my goal is now. And so, and I, I feel kind of lost, I guess. In the last two three months, I've had this like mini existential crisis, which I just don't know. Well, okay, let me, let me back up into, <laughs> let me back up into how I got here. But my goal at one point was to do 300K a year and in, in revenue. And I am happy, but it took me a lot less time than I thought it would. Things have been going really well. And after, you know, Q4 of last year, which is what got me, like made me worthy enough to be an Indie Hackers podcast. And like, it's been great to right. get recognition from folks. Um, Q1 was even better. I did like 50K more than I did in Q4. And then at that point, I think that's what really triggered my existential crisis of just like, well, now what? And I don't think, you know, I almost wish I was 
solely motivated by money because it would be really simple. It's like you do something. Does it make the number mm-hmm. go up? Keep doing it. Does it make it go down? Stop doing it. It's like very right. simple. But it's just very like scientific. I'm not. Yeah, I'm just not. But I'm not that motivated. Like I, I, up to a certain point, like money is just not. So what's the problem? My primary motivator. Well, so then it was just like, what's what's my new goal? Like, I, I don't know. And I still am like, I, of course, my underlying goal is to like be happy. So it sounds like you hit your financial goals, right? You you had some certain amount of deals or a certain kind of placement, a certain financial goal. What if your goal was was more focused on not so much just your happiness, but the people that you serve's happiness, you know, rather than a monetary goal? Because money – so when you exchange value, money exchanges hands in most cases, right? right? And if it doesn't, then it's – not usually a good relationship on the long term, maybe the short term. So if you exchange value between you and somebody else or vice versa, there's likely in a, in a capitalistic world an exchange of, of you know, money. I mean I've always wanted to help people. Like that makes me happy for sure. But I don't know how – and this is like what's really interesting is that I don't – like I hear all these other founders talk. I see them tweet. I, you know, I listen to their podcasts. I talk to them in person. And a lot of people just like have this – like they want to make the world a better place and, or they, you know, something like, I don't know, I, I don't mean to like roll my eyes, but like something hand wavy, fluffy like that. They really want to like have the greatest impact. They want to leave a legacy. And I'm just not genuinely that motivated by some of those things. Like I, I don't know if this is like super, uh, I, I, people say it's like optimistic nihilist or something, but it's like, I mean, I don't, I don't think if I really wanted to change the world, I probably wouldn't have started key values. There's probably a lot bigger problems and, a lot, you know, like uh, uh, really, honestly, most mm-hmm. startups in tech, like they're not the thing. That, you're not really changing lives by selling ads or like getting people to use your phone. To, like, hey, phone come on, don't knock like, my business. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's you, more I than mean, that, like, you of are, course. You're, you're touching them. You're touching them. But if you really want to change the world, I guess, I mean, of course, there's, I mean, there's a subjective evaluation of like what is really worthy of that. And so it's true. I can't knock that. But I think for me, it's like, I think I'm just not one, an activist. Like I don't want. I'm not in the business of wanting to convince people and convert them into my belief, like what my belief system. So a lot of people are like, Oh, why don't you do outbound sales? And I, and I, I mean, I one, I definitely could, but I, I mean, for business reasons, I have a lot of inbound sales. So I'm busy with that. But I also feel like there's a lot of people who just don't get it. They're not picking up what I'm putting down and I'm not, it doesn't excite me to try to like convince them to think something else. I'd rather just like stand on a mountain, shout what my truth and then for the people who hear that and resonate to come find me and then we can like work together. But right. I'm not really trying to convince, like try to convince someone to believe what I believe or think the way I think. And so I, I think in some ways that might change. I don't know. I don't know if that changes like the, the size, the amount of impact that you can have. But, but I guess, yeah, I mean, this is, this is all really good questions. I'm mm. like wrestling with them myself now. Well, it's I good you're like, wrestling with them though. I mean, that's, that's a positive thing because one, you're self-aware. Yeah. One of the biggest downfalls of most people is they're not self-aware enough to understand how to evaluate themselves so that they can improve. And that's a that's a good start. You know, so this Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. The state you're I in mean, is, is a good thing. It's weird because I know that, but like emotionally, like going even physically going through it, it feels so uncomfortable, but I know like logically that this is good. It's good for me to I'm doing exactly what I preach. Like you should stop, think long and hard about what you want to do. Does key values have a mission? I mean, I think it's so funny. I've talked about this a lot, actually, with very recently. I mean, I think it started as almost something more selfish. Like, it was to serve me in a way to, like, I wanted a business that would support my lifestyle and let me, you know, share my stories and also be able to encourage people to take leaps of faith and, you know, 
do what they really want to do. I, and I still feel that way. And of course, you know, I want to help people build their own dreams too. Like a lot of my founder friends, if they're hiring, like they have, they have this strong belief and they want people to help them build it. And I want them to help connect. But ultimately what I want for myself is what I want for everyone in this world is just to like, do you find out who that is, find your people, mm-hmm. whether that's at a company or family or friends or whatever that is. Like, I really just want people to identify what it is that they really care about and then find people that like help them fan that fire, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to judge whether that, like sometimes I talk to software engineers and they're like, Oh, I actually think I want to leave tech. And I'm like, okay, yeah, let's talk about that. Like, thankfully, I mean, I think you actually asked, asked about this in the side conversation, but he values, I don't charge by placement and I'm, very deliberately so. Like, I don't want to be motivated to just get people hired. Um, so, like, I'm happy to talk to people when they, like, want to do career changes or, like, if, if especially if their goal is not just to get hired at a company. Like, I, I think there's something bigger than key values in software engineers and startups that mm. I'm, I care about. But it's a nice and smart, let's be honest, focused way to build a business first. And so, I don't know. Maybe key values will expand to something more. But I generally think that the success for a business is being focused in niche. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I, I'm not sure what my next goal is, but I part of me is also like wants to be good at celebrating and like enjoying. Like, I don't need to be stressed about not having a really ambitious business goal, mm-hmm. um, which I up until very recently felt self-conscious admitting because I live in San Francisco and there's a lot of people who are very, very ambitious. And I sometimes feel nervous that I'm not ambitious enough. Um mm-hmm. Because I don't want to build an empire, like take over the world and build a $10 billion yeah. company. Well, so it, it comes back to finding out what you want though, right? Exactly. Yeah. So to, just to understand a little bit closer, because I think I know your story and your circumstance, but maybe the listeners don't yet, is um, key values is just one person, right? It's just you. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh so yeah. That we never that made that clear. You're taking out the trash, you're fixing the bugs, you're yep. designing the interface, you're implementing the interface. You are yep. doing the sales, you're doing customer service, you're doing bookkeeping, all, of like, all the things, right? I'm just Literally listing all, all the it. things that like I do <laughs> and I'm yeah. thinking like, gosh, man, it's a lot of stuff to do, you know? But I like it. Well, so yeah, of course you do, right? And I think the question comes from, you know, because you have this kind of influence around yourself in San Francisco is that you should now either take money or scale, right? Yes. So Lynn can't do all the things she can. But she shouldn't have to long term, you know, but don't feel I would say don't feel pressured into uh, I like to, to leverage smart money, you know, rather than just simply money. You know, how right. can this money not only give me enough capital to do something I want to do with it, but then also enable putting the right kind of people in place and the right kind of things in place to achieve the mission. And I asked you a question earlier about your mission. If you don't have a clear enough mission, not so much just for the company, but for yourself in the company, I think that's a great place to start because once we here at ChangeLaw realized, so about uh, 2006, early 2006, um, we sat down in a room for two days and sat down with a guy named Jake Stutzman. He runs a great uh, branding company called Elevate. And we sat in this room for two, two days straight. Uh, wow. Eight hours a day, no cell phones, no computers, just nice. whiteboards and riffing on where we're trying to go. We learned about branding. We learned about our story. And Jared and I became uh, very clear that we were on the same page. And we learned mm. that our mission was to enrich the lives of developers. And that means that no matter what we're doing, the thing that we figure out is like, does this help us to enrich the lives of software developers? Yes or no? Because if it's, if it's yes, 
then let's figure out how we should do it and when if we should. Uh, and then the other is like, if it's no, then, well, then we have our answer. So we, right, we, right, had our right. hat, we had our sort of primary litmus test of what we should do and something to weigh against. So if you don't have that now, then the reason you're in this crisis might be because of that. Yeah, no, I think it's, that's totally right. I think I don't know what my personal goals are. I don't think I know what exactly the business goals are. And I think I'm just, I feel the pressure the same way that I felt in grad school, of like people projecting their hopes and wants onto me. And I don't, I just want to be very careful that I'm not doing things because I, I just need to be careful that it's not obligation or like I feel like I, that's what I'm supposed to do because smart people are telling me to do it versus like I, I really want that. And I think this is actually a really good, interesting part because I work with lots of different startups and I see them at different, like I grow up with some stuff, like some of the companies that I onboarded two years ago, like I've seen them go from like two yeah. people to like 50 employees. Yes. It's so cool. I love and that I see too. them and they, their, their missions change too. And I think it's actually a lot of times when you hear like, you know, Airbnb or Stripe and you hear about their mission, like those are, I don't want to say they're, they're, they're not genuine. They're, you know, they're, they're real. I don't, I think they're authentic, but they are usually written or like they, they refine those after they got to a certain stage and they continue to edit those. But mm -hmm. when they started out, it's usually something, you know, like I think most people who started, they're like, I just want a business that I can pay the bills. Like I want to work on this full time. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but definitely maybe there's, there's, this is the right break, like the, the inflection point to, for me to think about what that new mission is now that I've reached. But I think it'll happen again and again. And I think that's totally normal. Well, um, the, the question too is like, let, let me give you ourselves as an example, because this is what we struggle with or have struggled with is that we're in a media business. And, you know, at some point, typical media businesses tend to have offices or some sort of co-located mm -hmm. space in a large city like New York or San Francisco or Chicago. There's well-known places that media brands, and I don't really consider us media per se. We just happen to be in this media space because we produce podcasts, you know, but our business name has the word media in it, change law media. Right. So clearly we think we're a media business of some sort. So the, the thrust for us is if we're going to be long-term successful, well, when will we have an office in XYZ city or whatever it might be? Or this co-located space with, you know, 17 uh, audio editors and, you know, 16 producers producing 50 podcasts or what, like, that, is that our goal? No. I think that the market can tell you, uh, can sometimes push you if you have competition. So at some point you may have to make choices you may or might not want to make because competition comes in and squishes you out because they... They have a different motivation. But for us, it's like, no, I don't think so. I live in a rural area of Texas called Tomball. It's just outside of Houston. I like a small town life. And so for me and for Jared, he lives in Omaha, Nebraska. We have families. We have certain lifestyle designs we want to live by. And so we map out what we do in our business based on how we want to live yeah. our lives, what makes us yeah. be better men for our family, better fathers, you know, better husbands, better brothers, better sisters, whatever it might be. You know, we're not sisters, of course, mm -hmm. but, you know. No, I love that. That makes me so happy to hear. And it's very refreshing to hear that, actually, because I don't, we mentioned in like a little side conversation, but in like San Francisco, that's not, you don't, most people don't go to San Francisco for, for that. Yeah. I mean, it's a really expensive place to go for, for that. If that's, Maybe if you that's should leave. Well, so that's part of my, <laughs> I'm very seriously considering, like I, my husband is, tethered, he's a startup founder, his company's in SF, but like. Maybe not in five years. So like what city would we want to live in? And that has been like a huge part of my mind share the last few weeks. Just like, I, I mean, it's a conversation I've had with literally every family member and friend. Um, just like what cities could we live in? And yeah. it's been, that's like, I've been thinking about that's very top of mind. You know, coming back to revenue too, it sounds like your revenue is at around, it's at the goal that you wanted to reach for the year, which as you said was 300K. 
So you're you're sort of past that already or to that or past that within six months time, right? Um, I'm cool. Actually, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty close. So yeah. if, the, if that was your goal for the year, I would say, you know, sure, it's great to make more, but when is enough enough? Not so much exactly. that you stop growing it, but when when can you be okay with where you're at and not feel like you have to push the pedal down and simply grow revenue for revenue's sake? I think a 20% increase in revenue per year is a good click to grow at. Around here, our mantra is slow and steady wins the race. And if we're moving too fast or there's something coming by that we feel like is pushing us faster than we want to in a new place or a new thing or a mm-hmm. new idea or a new shiny object, we say slow down and check yourself. You know, and right. then take action on that checking because too often are we feeling forced, pressured, or influenced into something that does not match our mission. Yeah. And so having clarity around your mission is key, key well, to being able to slow down and check yourself. I love hearing you say all that. And I'm really like, it, I'm smiling because it's just, I don't, I mean, I hear people say this like, uh, but they don't necessarily do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they'll say, like, I talk to friends and they're like, that's what I wish I did, but I don't feel that way. Yeah. Like, I, like I have investors, I have a board, I have people who are like breathing down my neck and I really just don't want to disappoint them. And I'm like, oh, right. that doesn't quite sound like you're following your own advice. But um, but I understand that situation too. It's just, it's not for everyone. But it's just so funny to me. I had this like epiphany a few weeks ago and I actually like just, I have a newsletter and it's usually, you know, introducing teams and like all these really unique, interesting facts about them um, and why someone may want to work there. But I just like in the heat of my existential crisis was just like, turned it. I was basically just like, blasting my personal diary <laughs> to like thousands of people. Um, but I, I realized in doing that and people like reached out to me, which was so great to just like bond with people on this, like very, you know, like real raw shared experience of just like, I don't know what the point of my life is. Like, what is the purpose? Like what drives us? Um, but I realized like it's comically on brand with key values. Like I have to figure out in the same exercise with everyone else. It's an ongoing process. You have to figure out like what your values are first before you can find a place or people or team to help you like build along that. So, yeah. like, if you don't know what you're looking for yourself first, it's you're always you're like it's you're leading it to chance that you just randomly happen to fall in a group of people that like are on the same page with you and are trying to go the same place you're trying to go and you w- and want to do it together in a way that makes sense to you. And so really like you have to do the hard work and it's just like it's just hilarious because I it's advice I give to people and I'm like, oh, I'm not looking for a job per se, but I am like I'm in the same exact boat. Of like needing to figure out what that, I mean, you can call it a mission for yeah. sure. I think a mission is, uh, it sounds kind of cliche to say, oh, do you have a, you don't have a mission statement, Lynn? What's wrong with you? That's not at all <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Cause I think that's, I think it's cliche, but it's also somewhat grounding to have. Yeah. Cause a mission is, I think of it less like a destination you're trying to go to and more like trajectory. Where are you, where are you sure. aiming oh, at? You know what I mean? I think it's important to have a mission for sure. I'm, I'm definitely like with you on that. I think it's, it's also funny. I think, it's like related to just being just your sense of identity instead of like your, as a person, your identity of your brand, mm-hmm. which is everyone has, it's a company, which is also, you know, it's like this other entity that needs a, a, an identity that everyone can kind of rally behind and, and be on the same page about, ah, sorry, there's a cat that just tickled cat, my leg. Gotcha. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, I think it's really important to have a mission. I think I need to Really, I'm still in the process of ironing out like different semantics, but yes, I'm trying to figure out what I want. Well, for a while there, you're just in this mode of like, can I actually do it? And then exactly. you get there and you're like, exactly. holy crap, I can do it. Now what the heck and am I, I doing? And then I did it. You know, and what? then I did it. And then it's like, well, now what? And so yeah. I think, yeah, no, that is exactly You're the in right. a great place. Like, at first it was survival mode. I know. And exactly. That's why I was saying before, like, I feel self-con- I feel like bad because I'm like complaining no. about. 
So let me, let me pause thing. you like, there I'm because so happy that I'm here. The reason why we do this show is because we need to hear this kind of journey. We need yeah. to have a place where other <laughs> future uh, entrepreneurs or those who are going to get influenced by your story, my story, this conversation. It's important. It seems like, you know, insignificant details that will a year from now not be present in your life. But to someone else, they're approaching that. They're in the middle of that. They are past that whatever it might be yeah. for you. And it's good to share these details because it's about you know, the journey. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I actually do this a lot because I'm, I'm a solo team, like team member and like my audience are software engineers. And I really think it's so much more similar than people realize. They're like, mm -hmm. well, you have your own business. You don't have a boss. So you don't know what it's like. And it's like, yes and no, but it's really similar to like a lot of software engineers I talked to. They learned how to code. They graduated from school. They landed this job. They have a salary goal. They're like, I want to make you know, 150K a year. And then they hit that goal. And then they're like, I want to lead a project. And then they do. And then they're like, I want to, I want to be a manager. And then they're managers. And then I talk to these hiring managers who some, like sometimes because they're customers, but sometimes because they're like, hey, we were a customer, but I'm actually thinking about leading this company that I helped put this profile together because I don't know what I want to do next. And it's the same thing. It's like, you have a goal. You re you're like, can I do it? You do it. You prove it to yourself. And then you, naturally it's not like a it's not, and it's, and this is something that people also hit me. They're like, you shouldn't always be like more, 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 but it is like, I think it's innate. Like it, we want, everyone wants something to like look forward to and you have to live somewhat in the, in the future, not just in the present and past. So I think it's like very natural to want something new to push yourself towards or to aspire to. And so it's not just founders that go through this. It's like, I mean, I really, it should be everyone, mm -hmm. um, but yeah. I guess you're right. Not, not everyone yeah. asks the tough questions. I'd hate to cram this last piece into 15 minutes, but if we could do 15 minutes, that'd be fine with me. Yeah, I'd, I'd love let's to go deeper and I, I feel like it might, but I at least want to give it 15 minutes. Yeah. And I want to talk about charging, when to charge, how to charge, your sales process, you know, love this topic. Who, who, who buys from you? How does it work? You know, what's the relationship like, et cetera. Just, you know, find the best path into any of that and we'll just, we'll just open it up. Yeah. Feel free to pepper it. Like just jump in, ask me questions as I, as I go. So key values. Um, so first of all, when I started key values, it was free and this was very deliberate. I think it goes against a lot of the advice that you hear from people say charges early. I think there's pros and cons for, for all these reasons. But for me, I ch decided to not charge until later because as you know, key values is a two sided marketplace and it's important for me to be able to provide value to software engineers, like right. you show up to the site and there's only one company on there, you're like, uh, yeah, great. Like very, I'm very underwhelmed. <laughs> so then you leave and there's nothing there, right? Um, so I think for me, it was like the goal is to get as many companies on so that it could start providing value as soon as possible and it's um, to, to software engineers. And um, so the, of course, doing sales takes time and it kind of, there's some friction there, especially for founders who've never done sales. Me, that was, that was me. To First just time figure sales? out the sales process. But he, yeah, oh, very, I was very beginner. I was winging it from the, it was, yeah, like hilarious to think back on. But even if you're like an expert salesperson, it takes time. Like the sales cycle takes time to like, like the paperwork, just deal, negotiating the, like it's just, it takes time. Can so you, I think can that you pause was, for a second and share when you started yeah. to first make money just so we can kind of have a, a time frame of reference? So, yeah. So I started key values in end of March, 2017. I did not start charging until January the next year. So it was like nine, almost, almost a year before I started charging. So, so you're about a year um, and a half into charging. Yes. Okay. 
I mean, based on the right at, yeah, right mm-hmm. at. I mean, all of 2018, and now we're in July of 2019. So that's a year. Yeah, now. July or sorry, 2018 to me was like the year of learning to do sales. Like okay. I will, when I'm old and wrinkly, I will be like 2018. 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, Go back oh, yeah, into it. Sure. I just wanted to have a frame of reference because I, I personally didn't know either when you started to make. Uh, you know, when you started to generate revenue and when you started to charge. So no, no, for sure. And I sometimes forget because like, I mean, so much happens in like a week in, mm-hmm. in this land. Um, but I remember, yeah, so I started charging. And in the beginning, I wasn't even sure if I start, should start charging. I knew I was providing that. So I helped companies place engineers, like engineers were hiring people that discovered them on key values, applied through key values um, before I started charging. And I was um, doing YC at the time. And Obviously, everyone was like outraged. They're like, you're clearly providing value. You need to be charging. And I was like, yeah. And I think part, real talk, I was nervous to do sales. Like I was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've never done it. And yeah. like, like, it just seemed, it also seemed like a huge distraction from my primary goal, which was to drive traffic to the site from software engineers. So I was like thinking content marketing, SEO, um, getting more companies on the, the, the site to like, obviously, because it makes it a better product. It makes it a better experience. And so for me, I was like, oh God, like, jumping on the phone and doing sales seems like just not fun. Torture. So I was like, yeah, so I was definitely avoiding it to some degree. Um, but then also I think like just from a strategic standpoint, I still wasn't sure if I, if, if that was the right move. And I still to this day think I could have, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that like what I ended up doing was the right thing. I don't know if I should have started charging sooner or even been later. Like if I had spent all of 2018, instead of focusing on sales, focusing on improving the product, growing traffic, building my audience, like then if, if I started charging now, it would be way easier to sell because it's like a ready, it's such a better, it's easier pitch. So maybe that would have been smarter. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have been made money until later, but making money would be easier. Maybe I could charge a lot more. Maybe like who knows, right? right? So I think there's, I'm really bad at giving advice about when to charge because I think it not, it's partially dependent on your business and what, like, what, what it is, how much, like what's, how difficult, whatever. Yeah. Or, like, how, are you providing value already? Um, but there's also something that is just like straight up your circumstance. If you can, if you, most people like, they are like, if I don't start making money in the next three months, I have to get a job. So that's why I'm doing sales now. And I think that's great. I think that's like a great motivator. Um, it's good to have some fire on your butt. To, to I would it. agree with that, except for to be in a sales position and have a position of desperation is not a good position to be in as somebody who's leading that sales front, because you would often propose a deal or take a deal that isn't actually in your best financial interest, even if it is moving the needle. Uh, so I, but what if you literally, the company dies, like you have to, well, obviously there's circumstances, but I right. think, you know, if you have a chance to map out the scenario, you know, so if, if there's someone out there listening to this and they're in the middle of like, man, when should I charge as soon as possible? I would say I as, think- as soon as it makes sense to continue to move the needle, provide value and, I would say establish partnerships rather than just simply sales, treat them like partnerships. Like when this relationship takes off, it's because we both have a planned trajectory of where we can take one another, my value and your value, et cetera. It's so tricky and interesting because when I first started doing sales, I reached out to like the seven companies I thought that were already on key values that I thought would say yes. Like they were really happy. They placed people. They like had all this positive feedback all the time. They're huge champions of key values. And like, all of them said no. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, so in my mind I was like, okay, it's not the right time to start doing sales. Was it because they were getting it for free though? Yes. So that, but that's what I didn't know at the time. I was just like, Oh, if the people who are happiest with key values aren't that 
excited to pay. What I didn't realize, and someone even, uh, the founder of Nihilus, I actually met up with her, Christ, uh, Christine Spang. She was like, told me that she was like, heads up, it'll be so hard to convert like free customers into paying. Just like FYI. Oh, yeah. Like, and I, I, I like heard it, I had it filed away, but I did not understand it until like after I experienced and got burned a bunch of times. Um, it's just, I don't know, sometimes I got to learn the hard way, I guess. Mm. Uh, but yeah, for sure, it's partially because of that. But also, I just was so bad. Like, I just had no intuition about sales that I legitimately picked the seven companies that were probably the, the hardest to sell. I just didn't know how to qualify them at the time. Um, like, they were like not funded, had no money, didn't have like the resources to pay. They, or, or they're like super well funded and we're getting a bunch of, they're, they're getting, they didn't need key values. Like they had a bunch of other channels that they were getting leads in. Um, I, there's one company that like, I knew that they had just had layoffs, <laughs> but Dang. I still, but they still love key values. And I was like, Oh, isn't that enough? But it's like, obviously that's not <laughs> like, they're not going to pay cause they don't, they're not hiring anymore. Um, so there's like all these things where I just didn't know, but I will, I agree. There's so many reasons why people should start doing sales earlier. If no other than to just talk to your customers, because otherwise you don't know what you're building for. Right. Before I started talking to customers, I thought I like, I, so after I got seven no's in a row, I was like, okay, well, I guess my product isn't good. So I was like, maybe I need to build out like an eight, maybe I had to turn key values into an ATS and compute, like, you know, and, or maybe I need to have like a forum or build a community, or maybe I need to, like, I just had all these other ideas for product and, and strategy. And I just, but by, by luck, pure luck, I just decided to reach out a couple more times and got some yeses. But if I hadn't done that, I literally would have just gone in this direction, building something yeah. that people don't even I mean, maybe people would have wanted it, but clearly I key values as a product has not changed like at all in two years and it's generating. It's like, yeah, people want it. People will pay for it. So I think there's something really important just to talk to your users and customers or potential customers just to know who you're building for. Um, and that is just, there's no shortcut. No, you, just, you said something yeah. before though about, um, about not knowing if it was the right thing to do. And you kind of talked about your process, you know, I, you need to have a more sophisticated sales process, whatever it might be to sort of get more inbound sales. And I would say there's two lessons that, uh, that I've learned, uh, that we implement every single day is iteration. Uh, the, the iMac that's sitting in front of me right now did not begin as a retina display, super flat, super small <laughs> iMac. It began as this, you know, gigantic TV looking thing that right. was colored, right? And it evolved over the years, yeah. right? Right. So that's my one simple example of iteration. Like it didn't, it didn't begin where it's at today. And so the same with your right. sales process. So be a fan of iteration. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that uh, has been crucial for me on like sales and customer development is this mentality of a velvet rope, right? So think of yourself as this exclusive place. And because you're solo, you only have so much time and you only want to give that time to people or things that really add value to the direction, the mission you're trying to go towards. And so yeah. if you treat your door like a velvet rope and only let in who truly belong, that fit the mold, the the fabric that you're trying to create, then you get to focus all of your time on the best potential people totally. for your future business. So having an understanding of what that velvet, velvet rope is means that, uh, but you know, it takes a little while to get there though too. You know, so if for you're sure. early in your sales process, you don't know, you really don't know, but you, you know, what you have to be doing is be getting to a position where you do understand what that velvet rope is for you and what kind of clientele should come past it. A thousand percent. Um, I was just going to say that I think a lot of people want like a shortcut, but you really like there's, you just have to, you have to have a large sample size of data to, to be able to start drawing patterns of like what, 
who is a good customer, what is a good partnership. Because if you, and it's actually so analogous to key values. Like if you only have worked at two companies, both were bad, both bad management, super toxic. You're like, well, I guess all jobs suck. All teams, like <laughs> right. being, being an employee is just bad. That's just accepted thing of the world and everyone knows it. But like, that's kind of the same thing. It's like, if you have two customers that are like really hard to work with, super demanding, pay late, whatever, unhappy, like then you start, you just like don't know better. Right. So you need to like give yourself the chance to be exposed and have a, like a large sample size so that you can start to know what to optimize, who to optimize for. It's the exact same thing yeah. with key values. Like you have to do some research to get more exposure so that you can start knowing for yourself, like what makes a good partnership, what makes a good customer, like who, what is the velvet rope treatment that you want to provide and who do you want to provide it for? Yeah. So a hundred percent. But yeah, like for anyone who's starting out, you literally just have to start doing it. Like there's mm-hmm. like, just start emailing today. People. Meet, meet them for coffee, ask them, like show them your podcast, watch them, use it, ask them, like get their feedback. And the other part, of course, which comes trickier is as you start to get more and more feedback and talk to more people is how to filter who to listen to and who not to because right. it's noisy. It's noisy. But right. first, just I think just collecting data first is like really the first is the goal. Yeah, I would say when is a good time to sell? Today. Yeah. Today's the best Today, day to so, begin selling. Yeah. I think like after this podcast, just like That's open right. up your inbox. If you're listening to this right now emails. and you're on the fence about two or three prospects – well, go and qualify them and turn them into yeah. opportunities and present them your opportunity and whatever you're doing today. It's a uh, cold. Just write an email. Yeah. It's, Personalize it's it. uh, Take 10 minutes per email. Yeah. It's uh, it's been paramount for our business. Our business is built on relationships. Um, all of our revenue is generated from theoretical ad sales, but it's for us, it's really about helping brands share their story with the developer community. And we try really hard to keep our sponsors relevant. And in fact, we've, we say no a lot. Um, it's awesome. Like we're fortunate that we can because we right. don't sell. I was going to say how, yeah, it's great that you're. Well, we don't sell from a position of desperation if we, if we don't have to, meaning that right. we try our best course, to not be desperate. Um, that affords us the ability to be confident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that also takes time. Like I think. It's similar to me and key values and similar to me when I was freelancing. Like in the beginning, I was like, I will take any gig. I don't care what it is. Like I just want like the goal was to just become a professional to about like actually make money off of this. And I think there's like that's OK. But the whole point, again, is editing and reevaluating and setting mm-hmm. goals and increasing your standards. And that just comes with time. But for sure, <laughs> no one, no one like hopes to be a desperate <laughs> in a desperate position for anything, whether it's getting a job or sales or whatever. Well, you know, I'll give you an example. If ever I sit down with a a new opportunity for us and I feel even remotely like I'm in, like I never want to come off as, as desperate. Most cases we're we're never really in that position, but there's times I really want to work with them or I really see, I see beyond because, uh, you know, when I take all the tests that show my strengths, I'm a visionary. I'm, uh, you know, self-assured, things like that. Like I have good self-assurance. I can really, I'm a futurist. I can really see further into the future, mm-hmm. not like telepathically, but no, I can no. just, <laughs> I can start to like, you know, visually see where we both can be in a partnership yeah. further and easier than they can. And sometimes a that's skill. a position of desperation. It's like, I really want to work with you. I can provide value to you. This will be a great relationship. Come on, please. No, you know that's I mean? not desperation. That's enthusiasm. That's <laughs> that's totally different. Like that's totally, totally different. It's a different angle of desperation, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you're not desperate because if you don't, your business like it's not survival mode, right? right? 
Like true, it's just true. like what, so I think, yeah, but I feel that way too. There are companies where I'm like, Oh, you like, I love the people. I, right. love the I, I selfishly want to share their story because it's so incredible. It's so unique. It's something. Um, and so I selfishly, I, I feel that way too, but I, I, for my own narrative, don't call it desperation. Okay. <laughs> I think it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's just, you have, I think I, I don't know if I'm, I would call myself a visionary, but I think I also have a good sense in like about good people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's, I don't think that's desperate. I think that is phenomenal. <laughs> I think you should keep doing that. Yeah. So since sales is so crucial to learn as a founder, to, uh, to be good at, how did you learn about it? How do you be good at it? You personally? Oh man. So for me, it was literally trial and error. I first thing I did was just like did exactly what everyone should do after this podcast. If they're not, if they're not doing it already, it's just pick a couple of people that have expressed interest or are already using your product or cold emails and just like reach out. And I know it's like, you will spend an hour probably drafting that first email overthinking every single word. And that's fine. Like, I think you should, I think there's literally no other way to start, just start. It's not pretty in the beginning and <laughs> it will be, it'll be continue to be ugly for a while. Um, <laughs> Wise words. But then I, like I did a couple of calls and I was, I did the same thing I did when I was freelancing. Like people would be like, well, how about they would like propose something and I would get, I would backpedal and be like, e- okay. Yeah, like I, in my mind, I'd start the call. Like I'm going to ask for $3,000 a year. And then, you know, they would like, they're like, why don't we keep doing a free trial for six more months? And, just, and I'm like, and I would just cave. Cause I was just like, I don't know. I was just scared, which is, it takes confidence to do so. Yeah. Just like it takes confidence to negotiate for a job, your salary and comp. And so I think there's like a little bit of trial and error with that. Um, and then the big thing that like really was a game changer was I randomly met this guy. His name is Danny. And he, we, he actually was um, introduced me by another friend who just wanted us to talk about burnout because I was burned out from grad school. And then I got, I was really burned out after working at Homejoy and I like am, I've just kind of like been someone people talk to, I guess, when they talk, when, when they think about burnout. And so she was like, you should talk to Lynn. She was, it was really therapeutic for me to talk to her when I, when she had burnout. And so, um, I met him for coffee and at the very end, like we had an hour and the last like five minutes, he was like, so what are you like doing today? And I was like, oh, I'm going to like try to do some sales. And he was like, oh, I did sales for like 15 years. Like, do you have any questions? And I was like, yeah, I'm like grappling right now with whether or not she have a pricing page. Like everyone I talked to was like, oh, you should have a like make it self-serve it's less work for you it's better like blah blah blah, blah. um and i explained like what key values was in like a minute and he very confident was confidently was like oh yeah you should not have a pricing page and like the confidence that he had in saying it was like it was just like so like i would just for weeks and weeks i was like should i i just kept getting all this advice and i wasn't sure and he was so confident that i was like oh my god like how like why mm. and he had you know he you know rattled off like a couple of of reasons and then the time was up so I was like can I pay you just to like talk to you and like like go through your emails he just left his job so he was like sure and so that's kind of how this started where I started I had a sales coach but his rationale for not having a pricing page was one um I don't know what to price people at and so it could be like quote-unquote dangerous to set a price if that's under what I could get so I'm leaving money on the table two it it's he, he was like, you, your product is so nuanced that people won't understand it right away. And so if you say it's too high of a number, people will see it and be like, I'm not paying for this and just leave. Um, and so his, his like advice was to just anytime someone submitted to be a key values, and this is exactly what I do today is I immediately schedule a call with them. And then I just have to understand what it, their pain points are first. Cause key values also has a number of use cases. It depends on 
type of company, the size, the stage, your current strategies. Like, there's, it's just new. It's just nuanced. Mm-hmm. So I have to like listen first about what pain points they have, because he was laughing at my emails. Because basically, at that point, anytime someone reached out to me, I would send them the exact same email, like irregardless of who sent, whether it was a founder, CTO, a recruiter, uh, like agency. Like I just had like the same spiel, and it was just he was like, "This is silly Catch-all. because you're listening." Yeah. Yeah, he's like, you're selling these value points to someone who doesn't have those pain points. Like, it doesn't, it's mismatched. So, like, it's, but you don't want to write a novel. Like, are you this person? Read this paragraph. Right. He was like, you should just have a call. I started closing so many more deals by doing sales. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is the secret that I did not know. And then for the next, and this was like probably, so I probably struggled from like four or five months doing that email thing. Then I met him in July of last year, actually. So it's been almost a year. And then the rest of the year, I started doing sales calls and refining that. And yeah, by Q4, that's when like, I feel like I started really getting it and that's when things picked up. Mm. Um, I felt more confident. I raised prices and I just, yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't cave. Someone was like, Hey, could you give us like a thousand dollar discount? I would just be like, Nope. Mm. Like I would, I feel that's confident good. saying no to business and stuff. Yeah. That's good. So, um, but yeah, it was a lot of awkward calls. There's so many sales calls where at the end I'd be like, I would just like sit and cover my face and just be like, oh, that did not just happen because I just like said something stupid or like I backpedaled too much or I was like, you know, I don't know. You just mess up sometimes. It's fine. Yeah. Wow. Let's talk about uh, what was 2017's. uh, No, you started to sell in 2018. So what was revenue your first year out? I mean, 12 months out, it was probably like 10,000, maybe like, I actually don't know. It's probably like $10,000 in the first 12 months. Let's say 10,000 for 2018. And then we're in 2019. Oh, no, 2018 was really great. I thought you meant cap, like 12 months from when I started. Oh. 2018 was, I did over 100K, but probably just. So you've, most, and you've most more than doubled Q4. your year one revenue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Sorry, I'm like thinking right now. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> Q4, yeah, well, so yeah. And I think it's just the question of like, I started getting really addicted to watching that number grow. And mm-hmm. it's just like I was competing with myself, competing with myself. But at some point I was like, oh, same thing from like the grad school thing of like, is this a race that I want to win? How many hours win? a week do you work? Well, during my little recent, like recent slash current uh, mini existential crisis, I've been working like, I don't know, anywhere between 25 and 40 hours a week. Like very reasonable. Q4, Q1, I was like a definitely solid 60 60 hours a week, probably yeah. maybe 70. I don't know. Sometimes I don't know if it's work or not. Cause it's like, I also, yeah. it's sometimes it's fun. I, I believe that the boundary a lot. Yeah, you, so like, well, you know, I think that, uh, I could like dive deeper, deeper into more advice, but I don't think that this show is simply just about me. Uh, <laughs> no, I want to hear, I mean, you can definitely share it with me off, offline too. Well, off I'll share air. a piece with you here is that, you know, when you're working 60 hours a week, you're not leaving enough. You're, you're sort of leaving crumbs on the table for the other people that matter in your life. You know, your mother, your dad, your sister, your husband, friends, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I try to optimize for how can I give people quality parts of me versus the crumbs. So if, if I kill it every single day in my business, which is great for business, but it leaves everyone else that matters in my life with crumbs, that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not happiness for me. <clears throat> but for me, it's a little different, I think, than anyone else because not everyone feels that way. Not everybody has enough people in their life I they really care way. about, you know? Oh, And so true. I would say optimize your life for those those kinds of things if you can. And build build sales goals around that kind of stuff and, and uh, milestones and, and, you know, whatever scaling is to you based on 
how happy Lynn is in giving the people in her life not crumbs. A thousand percent. That's it. I like the way that you think about it with, with the crumbs because it's like you can't do – I mean we all have a very finite number of hours in the week and then number of those that are waking hours. Um, I was going to say that I talked to lots of – you know, I'm in San Francisco. I run into founders all the time. I talk to founders all the time. And I, I actually think that even if you don't have people you love, like don't forget to prioritize – like your personal life. Like I know people mm-hmm. who just don't go on any dates for like five years because they're so heads down. And obviously I'm not saying that everyone has to like find a, a, one partner and marry them and do that. Like there's no rules, but right. I think a lot of people do want those things and they just push them aside. They say, I'll do it later. And I definitely think that it's good to nurture all the, the sides of you. And maybe that's even just like learning another language or like a hobby. If you want to, like you have like fitness goals, like don't wait. Don't, you don't have to be 35 and rich to start caring about your health. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I think, so I think it's, I, I definitely agree with that. And, um, I could not agree more like that is totally my ethos. Like if I think the other thing that's interesting since we started this conversation about quitting, if I'm not happy, I will click, I am no doubt if I, I will quit. And so I think for me, and this was interesting actually, especially going through why, so I went through YC, we didn't kind of just brush, I didn't even mention that, but I felt like everyone was optimizing for all these things. And for me, it, because I had runway, I had money saved, and I knew that, you know, worst case scenario, I could just go back to living my scrappy mm-hmm. grad school, $30,000 a year lifestyle, that the thing I was most worried about and had to protect was my happiness, because if I wasn't optimizing for for both present and future happiness, then I would quit. And that would be the demise of key values, not that I ran out of money or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell the listeners now that the, the YC story you told, I think, pretty well with Cortland the podcast you did with him on Indie Hackers, I think that was a great show. And I think if you listen to this and you like what you heard from Lynn here, you'll hear a different side because Lynn is really good friends with Cortland. And, you know, he was able to pull a lot of interesting things out of her story that I wasn't able to simply because of their relationship. But you shared yeah, quite a bit around there. the quitting process really with uh, with Y Combinator. And uh, that's that's interesting because – uh, that was a position of quitting for you too. Was was it, in a lot of ways, yeah. It, I really do quit a lot. That's okay though. Um, if you can no, be I strong mean, and you're I'm, quitting, I I don't see. I mean, obviously, you want to quit in healthy ways, right? Of course. And that's what course. the dip it really is about. Is like, how do you know when it's a healthy time to quit? Because quitting just isn't a healthy thing. Because sometimes you have to go through the hard stuff to truly appreciate. You know, you can't have the sweet without the bitter. And vice versa. Right. So, you know, you sometimes have to sacrifice a little bit to get the good stuff. Yeah. And I, th- I think I say it and it's probably, I, I, I imagine I'm saying it to an audience that's like similar to, to me, like people who want to work hard and probably almost love working hard for the sake of working hard, which is, can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, like, yeah, if you just quit everything. I mean, yeah, that's, I'm not talking about that. And I'm also not talking about like table flipping, flipping and like in a here. dramatic yeah, burning like, bridges. I'm not talking about, oh my like, gosh! Exactly. Yes. Not especially in our industry. My gosh, do not burn bridges. If you're listening to this, Lynn, if you're <laughs> listening to this, if you don't, if you feel the same way, then just say yeah, yeah, because uh, do not burn bridges. People do not are not identified by their company. They won't be in the same place two years from now. And oh everyone, no, not at all. You know what I mean? Like relationships you forge at this one company, they may move to somewhere else and be able to take the same value you've already put into that relationship into a brand new position. And either way, just be a good human. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, exactly. Don't burn I, say, like, I mean, for very business reasons, you shouldn't. It's not like a good business, to, like, good. It's not good for business to burn bridges. But also, just like, yeah, for like being a real person, be like, a good don't. Human. Yeah. It's not really fun to have a bunch of like a, a long list of uh, 
the blacklist or people that you're on their blacklist. That's right. Let's close out with some advice from you. Given what we shared Ooh. here today, I know it's it's hard to ask that, you know, yeah. overarching give advice question, but you know, here's I'll give you some some uh, some guardrails. Yes, yes, you go first. <laughs> in in your Forbes interview, which I think is so awesome, you did an interview with Forbes. You mentioned three crucial questions to ask, mm. and I think this somewhat dovetails with something I talked to Saranya Bark on the show recently as well, which was, "What are you optimizing for?" This was this crucial question she asked herself. There was three questions you asked that you ended this article with, this interview with. Uh, the first one was, "What is the outcome I'm aiming for? What energizes me on a day to day basis?" And what is keeping me from starting? And I think I'm not really sure what the positioning is of that, but that to me seemed like really three crucial questions to ask yourself. The couple of these I would even say re-ask yourself this: like, what am what am I aiming for, Lynn? Uh, what energizes me so day to day? And you know that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the aside from those pieces of advice, which is really in a way to say that my advice is not to listen to all advice. Almost, <laughs> I think it's like you have to learn how to filter through advice and know what's good or not. And I think. I'm guilty of this, which is why I say this, is that we all sort of wish that someone could just prescribe us like the exact steps to insert goal. And it just, if, if only it were that simple. It is, right. It's not. Um, and like, I think a, the problem with getting advice and there's when I honestly, when I was doing YC, I think part of what was so stressful for me was I was getting too much advice and it was all good advice, just not for me. Like it was good advice for someone else, but it wasn't necessarily for me. And I think the problem with, um, honestly in tech in general is like people, you know, it's very passive. Like someone's listening to this podcast and they're like, Oh, this person said this, it must be true for me. But what we, what we don't know about whoever's listening is we don't know your circumstances. We don't know your goals. Right. We don't know what your strengths are. We don't know. So like, it's hard, like you have to make sure that you know how to filter through advice and see if that's good for you, given your personality, your goals, um, your skill set, like all of that. And no one can do that but you. So I think those three questions in that, in that Forbes interview are kind of like a way to, to do that. And mm -hmm. um, like one of those things was actually literally written because of YC. I think I went through YC open-minded to fundraise. And then I realized that it wasn't for me. But what I didn't do was communicate to everyone giving me advice that I no longer wanted to be like a VC-backed billion dollar unicorn like that just wasn't my goal anymore and I people kept giving me advice that just didn't fit because that wasn't my goal anymore like their advice was good I just for somebody else for a different trajectory yeah. and so I think that was my fault because I kept getting advice that didn't make sense and trying to what is that phrase like spit a square into a circle okay. put a round I'm peg so into a square hole phrases. there you go thank or you. a square peg I, into I a just, round hole I did I did a bad one. square peg round hole that one yeah. I grew up with Chinese parents. I don't know. They like didn't say all those. <laughs> it it um, sounds so, like your advice then is to, uh, is to not take all advice. And, uh, yeah. what was the, the last piece there was take advice that better fits you. Yeah. And you know, so be I think, kind of aware. Cause like you can get, like you said, you can get advice from that's great advice, but just does not make sense for what you're trying to do. Yeah. Or maybe the, or the stage that you're in, like maybe yeah. it'll be the right advice a year from now. And so, but, um, I think the first, like one, you should be able to filter and have a rubric for evaluating advice, but also you can be proactive and just when you ask for help, be more specific. Like people still ask me, they're like, how do I be successful? How do I find a job I love? How do I start? Like, how do I launch a product? And it's like, those are very vague. Like there's, there's like asterisks for all of them. Right. Give some and context. So you have to like, yeah. So like provide context for yourself. And also when you ask for advice, so people know how to give you good advice that's tailored to you. Well, Lynn, thanks. Thank you for sharing your journey. I know that uh, 
being being a founder is, is difficult, especially when you're a solo founder, as you are right now. You feel a lot of pressure because you do have to do all the things. And if you don't do the things, they don't get done. Right. Right. And so you feel this constant pressure. And I, and I appreciate um, you being able to come on the show and just share that because that that to me is what this show's about. If uh, if you're listening to this for the first time, this show, there's not a cookie cutter way we do every single show. Every story is a little different. But the goal I try to do is just share the journey. What are the struggles? What are the pains? What are the ups? What are the downs? You know, what's this journey you're on as a founder and how can you share your experiences in particular? Yeah. And everybody's experiences are different. You know, we'll have some shows on how they raised X amount of dollars. Some shows where we're talking about the sales process, et cetera. So. Yeah. You know, what's so funny. Sorry not to make this episode even longer. I just realized I do the exact same thing. Like you do that with your your podcast guests, but I do that with each company. Like Mm -hmm. every company has their own origin story, their own goals, their own industry. Um, And yeah, so I like. It's funny because I do that in creating key values profiles. Like it's every, it's, it, I'm a chameleon to them. Um, but yeah, we have similar jobs. I just realized. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish we had more time to go so much deeper. If this was a Joe Rogan show, for example, it would be a three hour long show. Uh, it's not. So we, we uh, and again, I have a, an, I've had a, an outline here, but by no means do we even scratch the surface on all the things I want to talk about. Like, I think that's I'm good a, though. I'm a talker. We, we talked about the things that need to be shared. Because, you know, you're in a certain position right now and, and all the details, you know, uh, we don't need to go through everything, for example, you know, but I, I'd love to learn more about, um, you know, some of the background of key values and, you know, the, yeah. the systems you have and stuff like that. But <gasps> did you just ask me to be your friend on your podcast? Because the answer is yes. Let's be friends. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Yes. I want to be friends. I want to be friends for sure. I'm excited. No, yeah. That's my goal with most things like this. So I'll share, as we're tilling out here, I'll share um, what this show is. And maybe this show, I started it in 2010 Whew. because I love to dig into. And it it hasn't, so I've had to, actually had to pause it. It's a whole different story, which doesn't really end the podcast very well. But in order to build uh, Changelog Media the way it is today, I had to focus. And the way I had to focus was I had to pull in. I had to quit some things. Right. I had, to, I had to stop doing this show and a couple yeah. other podcasts I was doing and and focus on building out what has now become changelaw.com. And uh, and if it hadn't been for that quitting and that focus, which is this show, which started in 2010. And I think this might be what episode actually is this? I don't know what uh, I don't know. I don't know what episode this is. Maybe 50 something or whatever. 65 or yeah. so. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter. The point is, is like since starting in 2010. That's not a lot of shows in 20, since 2010. That's like nine years. Right, right. right? Uh, the point of me telling you this is that uh, this show is a growth hack for us. Totally. Right? We use this show to meet the right people, to develop good relationships with lots of good people. One, I often get to give and get amazing advice. Uh, not that my advice is always amazing, but you know, I get to get a lot of amazing <laughs> advice. No, yes. Yeah, you do have good advice. And uh, so in that regard, we, we you know, this, this show is – is about sharing that journey, but at the same time, selfishly, it's a growth hack for us because in a lot of cases, it helps us map out future people. We should have either, you know, financially related business relationships or just in general, be better friends and citizens too. And every every person we've talked to from this show has been in some way, shape or form, some sort of friend or partner or business relationship. And that's, you know, selfishly as part of the goal. I love that you just said that because I don't, I'm not 
as shy to share that publicly because that's, I think that's the whole point of, that's my definition of lifestyle business at least, Mm -hmm. or really just being happy is like you're doing, first of all, it's not selfish because you're not take like you making friendships and setting up good partnerships isn't preventing someone else from making friendships and like building good relationships and partnerships. So it's not selfish. I have to edit myself too sometimes when I say these things, but um, yeah, I, I call them twofers. Like if you can have fun, make money, like develop skills, build your network all in one, why not? Right. And that's the same thing with like ev- everything, like anything that you spend a lot of hours do- like doing. I mean, like we're like, honestly, we are really not on earth very long. <laughs> so it's like make the most of your time here. And I feel that way about jobs. Like you can make friends, learn skills, build, like learn a new industry, like get paid doing it. Like there's all like, why not try to do it all? And I, I definitely don't think like if, if it's called, if, if we're calling it selfish, then I think everyone should be way more selfish and mm. they just need permission to do that. Cause yeah. I feel that way with key guys. Like I make so many friends and meet so many cool people because of this. And that's like a huge, it's the funnest part of my job. A thousand percent of the people I meet and talk to and get to like hang out with sometimes. Yeah. Um, I like calling two first. That's a, that's a good name. That's a good way to end it too. <laughs> Lynn, thank you so much for all your advice, sharing your journey. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. And not being shy about it too. I love, I love that. And um, that makes me excited because sharing the not so pretty parts of someone's story is, is difficult, but very rewarding for those listening. But it's the best part. Anyways, well, I guess we can talk after. We <laughs> but thanks again. This is awesome. <laughs> Bye everybody. All right, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, whatever you're using. Favorite it. Leave us a rating or review. If you tweet, tweet a link to a friend. And, of course, thank you to our sponsors, Linode and Discover.bot. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we're able to move fast and fix things around here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers and to Linode.com slash changelog. Support this show. Music is by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's awesome. Check it out at changelog.com slash master or go to your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe. Get all of our shows in one single feed as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.